Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today, we have Donald James on the show, and he is a retired NASA senior official. So, Donald, how you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. Great to great to connect with you. Yeah, no, love to connect with you, too. And so we like to hop right in on the podcast. So if you could start with just telling us a little bit about yourself and some of the stuff you like to do for fun, that would be great. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start with the fun part first, because that's always great. Uh, I love to read. I love to to walk and enjoy nature. I love the beach, and I love to um, be in warm beach weather when I whenever I can. In fact, going to Hawaii on Saturday, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, I love to play card games sometimes, and um, uh, and I love to uh, be with uh, my friends and family whenever I can. Um, I was born and raised in, in California, specifically Sacramento, went to college in Southern California, and then graduate school in Washington, D.C., and after graduate school is when I started my NASA career. And so um, I'm a father of two, a son and a daughter, and I have a wonderful daughter-in-law and a wife of 32 years, almost 33, and uh, I have a younger brother who is a who was my co-author on a book that I wrote, um, and Dennis is a captain with American Airlines. He flies the brand new Dreamliner aircraft. And so I'm jealous he gets to, that's his office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about your career with NASA and some of the stuff you're doing now to kind of fill your days. Yeah, so um, oddly enough, I wasn't planning on working for NASA, but I did have an initial dream in, in aerospace um, engineering. And I thought that's what I wanted to get into. I like my brother. I love aviation and planes. Uh, but I took a detour in college, uh, which I can get into later because I think it's an important part of the story about how sometimes things happen and you have to swerve or pivot, even academically. Um, but I never lost my interest in aerospace. But because I had the privilege of traveling around the world with my father, who was a diplomat, I got to live in countries in Africa and Southeast Asia, and I really saw, you know, some of the challenges there. And so I thought I wanted to really get into economics and figure out how I could do economic development to to help in that area. Uh, but then halfway through graduate school, it suddenly dawned on me that I really didn't want to be an economist, and I wasn't quite sure if I was being trained to do anything specifically. So I was getting concerned about employment and life after school. And someone turned me on to a government program called the Presidential Management Intern Program. It was fairly selective, but if you get into the program, different agencies in the U.S. government had positions just for uh, PMIs, as we were called, Presidential Management Interns. And so I was fortunate. I passed all the tests in the gauntlet, and I got selected. And out of the blue, I got a letter from NASA uh, this was back at the Goddard Space Center in, in Maryland. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And I got a letter saying, we'd like to interview you. 
And I thought that was odd. I mean, I hadn't studied engineering and since, you know, my freshman and sophomore year of college that I had changed majors and changed interests. But my father, um, who was pretty wise, suggested that I take the interview, whether I was going to, you know, accept the job if offered or not, because interviewing and practice interviewing was a good idea. And so I did do the interview and I was candid with the interviewers. I said, I'm looking at, I'm exploring my options. I'm looking at other areas. And, um, and they said, okay, that's fine. And, and then the next day I got a call from one of the people on the panel who said, you know, they really liked you and they'd like to offer you a position. And I was a bit surprised uh, by that. Um, and I said, well, I'd like to give it some thought because I was still trying to consider other options. Well, those other options weren't working out. And again, my father weighed in and said, um, see, I was living with my dad at the time. So I think there was this subtle hint, like this is a real job that pays. And, you know, maybe you might want to think about this. <laughs> you know, now that I'm a parent, I can appreciate, you know, wanting your kids to get out of the house and make it on their own. So um, he said, why don't you just, you know, take this job and get some experience, some real world experience, which I lacked and for about a couple of years and then see what you think if you want to stay great if you want to change now you have some experience so that's what i plan to do although i didn't tell the interviewers that i accepted the job and said i was really happy and honored to work for such a you know great agency like nasa but in my mind i was thinking okay i'm gonna give them two or three years and then i get my experience and i'm gonna go on and save the world from destitution and poverty but then something happened, and it was 1986, January, to be specific. And that's when the Challenger shuttle exploded, killing the seven astronauts. And I, like other NASA people were, um, I mean, that was like 9-11 for NASA. It's a poor analogy, but that's what it felt like. And I was asked by the head of education, NASA education at the time, because I was in California, if I would uh, work with the woman who was the backup astronaut to the teacher who was on the shuttle. You see, on the Challenger, we had a teacher. Her name was Krista McAuliffe. It was part of NASA's effort to fly regular normal Americans in space who had the ability to communicate the wonders of space, you know, who weren't, you know, professional astronauts or engineers. And Krista was a school teacher and NASA uh, really values uh, students and education. And so they were going to fly this teacher. And then after that, it was going to be a journalist and an artist. And so they had this whole plan. So the teacher was the first to go up, but sadly, uh, the orbiter exploded on launch. So the backup to Krista McAuliffe was a woman named Barbara Morgan from Idaho. And Barbara lived in California, and so they asked me if I would um, take Barbara to different parts of the state to uh, talk to students and teachers, because by now the country was really reeling from this accident, and there was a hunger to connect with NASA. This is how NASA was going to connect. And it was during this experience of getting to know Barbara Morgan and going around and seeing all of these students and teachers that just came out of the woodwork to see her and connect and you know grieve with NASA and, and hope with NASA and just want to connect that something began to change in me but there was one incident 
that was really the clincher. And it was in Los Angeles. And typically my job is to introduce Barbara and say a few words and I would stand off and I had to be the bad guy and take her away when it was time to get on the plane. But after every talk, she would stay around and sign autographs and talk to teachers and students. And I was standing there on the dais off to the side waiting for Barbara to be finished. And this young boy came up to me with his notebook and a pen. And he's down on the floor and he's holding it up to me. And I'm thinking, you know, he wants Barbara's autograph, but he's afraid he's not going to get it. So I just leaned down and I said, don't worry, go ahead and get in line. I'll make sure that she autographs your notebook. And he looked up at me and he said, no, I want your autograph. And I said, my autograph? Why? I'm not the astronaut. You know, she's the astronaut. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said in complete sincerity, he said, yeah, but you know, you work for NASA and man, that is just so cool. And it was right then and there, Tim, that I said, this is where I'm going to hang my hat because I realize that just because of the place I work, just because of who my employer was, I could have an impact on students. And I decided right then and there that I was going to stay with NASA and make a career out of it. And I did. And I progressed all the way up to eventually when I became the head of NASA education. So that's how I got into NASA. That's why I stayed with NASA. And I had a very wonderful and privileged career. Right now, I am retired and, you know, I wrote a book based on, you know, what I learned from my experiences in order to help um, share with students and early career professionals my views about what it takes to be successful in an organization like NASA and successful in life in general. general. The book was based on things I learned from my mother about having great manners, and we can talk about that, I hope. Uh, things I learned on the job at NASA and all the training that I had. And so that's what I did after, um, after I retired. And um, it's been a wonderful ride ever since. I love it. I love it. Let's jump into that right now. Tell us a little bit both about your motivation for writing the book and then your dreams and vision for the book and the impact. Yeah. So after I retired in March of 2017, the chief scientist at the NASA center where I worked to that summer's crop of student interns. So see, NASA has a big, vibrant intern program, and as the head of education, that was part of my responsibility. So he thought it would be fitting if I would come back to NASA now as a retiree and speak to the students about you know my career and uh, what I did and all of that. And at the end of that talk, during the question and answer session, a young man raised his hand, student, and said, if I could go back in time to when I was a student like them, but knowing what I know now, what would I advise myself? How would I coach myself at the beginning of your career? And I said, that's a fantastic question. And the answer I gave him was, I gave him three answers, actually. The first answer was, I said, you know, I would tell young Donald to say yes more. Say yes more to opportunities that are going to come your way. Because in hindsight, I think I left a lot of opportunities on the table because 
I was afraid I wasn't uh, capable. You know, I had imposter syndrome. I didn't think I was good enough. I was concerned about a foreign environment or people that I didn't know. You know, I realized that I got comfortable. But in hindsight, the times when I did say yes and I did something a little bit unusual and different are the times that I grew the most. The second thing I told that young man is I said I would tell young Donald to remember the thing that his mother taught him and his brother. And that's actually the title of my book. And that is Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. And my mother taught us that to underscore that it doesn't matter how book smart you are. and It doesn't matter how rich you are. It does really matter how your manner is, how you show up in the world, because that really is going to be the discriminator for most people on how well they do. And I never really appreciated it at the time. I didn't appreciate it till much later in my life. And thank goodness I probably, you know, embedded her thinking because I think that's what carried me forward. So the third thing I said to that young man was uh, now you got to remember the time this so I gave this talk in 2017 but he was asking me about 1982 right so just remember what we had and didn't have in 1982 and I said I would whisper into Donald's ear remember the name Facebook Google Apple Amazon and buy a lot of stock <laughs> <laughs> because you will be really wealthy. Notwithstanding my mother's admonition about manners will take your brains and money won't. So anyway, they got a big laugh out of that. So that's what I told them. And so um, sadly, my mother unexpectedly died uh, the next month after that talk. And so I was struggling a little bit trying to um, figure out, you know, what my purpose should be to honor my mom and and I, I realized that I wanted to write a book, which is the longer answer to that young man's question. And that's what the book is. It's a longer answer to that. And I've, I've had a lot of, um, and my, my dream really is to, to instigate a manners revolution, a manners renaissance, if you will. I'll call it a renaissance, a rebirth, because Unlike what most people think the term means, and I appreciate that at its basic level, it's about civility and politeness, you know, the please and thank you stuff. I came to realize from my experience at NASA that manners is much broader than that. It's much deeper than that. And I've given talks about, you know, my view of that. I, but more importantly, I saw it in action in not only at NASA, but in other organizations. I had a chance to work for a uh, startup company during my senior training. I saw it operate there. I've seen it operate in nonprofit organizations that I've been associated with. And so what I want to do is first and foremost for people starting off in their careers or students or early career professionals is to share with them how I see the world through a manners lens and to explain what it is and specific things that you know you could do and think about because I really believe I honestly believe it's the secret sauce and but it's not easy and the reason I say that is that one of the analogies I use for manners is that it's like a computer's firmware 
meaning it's not something that gets changed a lot. It's, it's actually hard to change it. It's, you know, usually we can add applications and add software and things of that nature. But the fact is that our firmware as individuals, you know, our personalities and things that we learn growing up, that our mannerism, some of it's even genetic. I mean, if people look at my son, they see a lot of similarities with me just in how we gesture and how we move and how we speak and things like that. That's part of our firmware. And what I argue is that's our manner. That's our manner in which we show up to the world, right? And so I'm inviting people to look at their world from that context and ask themselves, is there a way of polishing and improving and, and developing and cultivating their manner such that they can, be, they can have a fulfilled and meaningful career in life? And so that's my hope. I, I, and I'm using the book as an excuse to talk to anybody who will listen. Um, I'm, I don't consider myself a writer, although I may write other books. I consider myself an author. And so I, it's not, this is not what I do for a living. I mean, I, I've already had a great living and I've got a great you know, retirement and I'm enjoying lots of things. But this is special because, um, and I didn't, I didn't write the book. I started it in 2018 and I finished it. It was published February 2nd of this year, 2021. And I didn't write the book in response to, in the last several years, what seems like a breakdown in civility in our society, particularly political. That wasn't what motivated me, although I was very well aware of it in the whole evolution of the book. It was really deeper than that. It was about how people, you know, relate to themselves, how they relate to their environment and their community, and how they think about their connections with people. And so if I can impact the civility problem, then great. I, you know, I, I would love to see that happen because I'm deeply concerned about it. But that wasn't, the, that wasn't the initial motivation. So that's why I wrote the book, and that's what I hope to accomplish with the book, A Manners Renaissance. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I love the emphasis on manners, not just being the politeness. You know, it's being yeah. the, the manner in which you show up every day in so many various aspects. Yes, exactly. And it's and I'll, and I think people when they think about it it makes common sense. I'm not saying something that is revolutionary, but it's how we hold ourselves. It's our body language. We know from research, it's scientifically demonstrated that most of our communication and that which gets communicated is not verbal. And that which is it is verbal is often governed by the tone of our voice and how we articulate things. It has very little to do with the actual words that we use. So you can use certain words and use and said differently can convey a different meaning. And then you have different cultures and you have different parts of the country. You have different, you have gender, you have religions, you have a lot of things which influence people's behavior and their and where they're coming from right i know you have probably met people and talked to people and thought they just don't seem that authentic to me there's something about them that just feels uh phony and maybe that it's for a reason that they think is a good reason you know the example that i i give is uh i was on a business trip once and the gentleman who came to the door of the hotel to help me with my bags was just 
uh, over the top polite and effusive and he you know and yes sir and and thank you for coming and hoping you're having a wonderful day and he went on and on and on like this and when i got to the desk to check in and i gave him his tip for helping with my bags i just had this thought in my head i bet he's not like that at home i so what i felt was i was getting an act and the act is called be real nice and polite and manners act for the customer in order to do my job because he was probably trained that way and you've experienced this right you get a you call tech support on the phone and you're talking to somebody from somewhere around the world and they're just really nice but you can tell that's they're reading a script or they were trained now say yes sir and do this and so I view authenticity as a natural, organic way of being uh, mannerly, if you will, without having to put on an act that comes across as insincere or phony, because that's not what I want. I don't know about other people, but I want the real deal. If you're having a bad day, man, like, you know, you can say, hey, Don, thanks for asking, but I'm having a rough day today, but you know what, I'm, I'm excited about this interview, and we're going to get through it, and you know, I appreciate that. Well, that's truth. You know, that's who you really are, rather than making up something in order to sound right or whatever. It's like thank you notes. My mother, who was, you know, as I mentioned, influenced me greatly, was real particular about handwritten thank you notes. She drilled that into my brother and me the whole time. But the thing I notice is sometimes I'll get a note and it feels like, you know, some kid's mom made him do it or the mom wrote the note or the dad said you have to do this. And it didn't feel like it was coming from the kid's heart. And whether I can read the handwriting or not is irrelevant. The question is, is this something that the kid's really grateful for? In fact, if someone doesn't particularly like something I did or gave them, I'd rather them not you know, acknowledge me for it because I don't want them to do the ritual called I'm going to do a thank you note. You know, I want to be deserving of their thanks. I want to be worthy of their gratitude. I don't want me to feel that I was worthy of their gratitude when it really wasn't the case. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually, I'm a really big fan of authenticity. And I guess my question to you is, and then I want to jump into the detour that you took in college. Yeah. But my question to you on the authenticity piece is, what would you say to the person that is putting on the act because they're running from themselves mm -hmm. and they really think they are? So they think their authentic self is just so ugly and despicable. They don't want to show it to somebody. Yeah. And yeah. so they're running from themselves by putting on that act. Yeah. So f for me, I think it depends on the trust that I have with the person that I'm speaking with. You know, if I if I'm interviewing someone and I've interviewed hundreds of people for my work, I've been on both sides of the table. And a lot of times I may not have met them until they actually walk into the room. And so if I feel like I'm getting an act and a lot of times I get the I'm going to do good in the interview act and, you know, and I can tell that, you know, they practice and I'll give them credit for that. I mean, I don't mean to disparage you know, what they're trying to do. But because I've been in so many, you kind of see the, you know, the ritualistic things they do. If I feel somebody is really covering up who they really are, depending on whether I sense we have a level of trust, I might ask them, you know, like, you know, is that how it really is? Or, you know, 
or is there anything else going on that you want to tell me about? But it's it's delicate because if you don't have a trust relationship, then you haven't, I haven't earned the right for the other person to lower their shields with me in order to connect. But it's something that I, I, I might have a red flag. And I've actually recommended people not be hired because of those red flags, even though had I taken the opportunity or risk to probe a little bit, I might have discovered that, you know, maybe the person's, you know, best friend just died and, you know, they're they're trying to pretend that it's not an issue when it really is an issue. What I would really love is if, some, if that happened to somebody and they come in the interview and just look me in the eye and say, when I, because I'll say, hi, how are you? And they'll say, you know, the truth is I'm sad today because I just lost a best friend and I haven't gotten over it. I'm committed to this interview, but you just need to know that that's where I am. I'm going to tell you, I've probably said yes to hiring that person before we got into the details because the person was willing to be real with me on that. But it's not something that we're used to doing. I've gotten better at answering that question uh, to, to people in a more authentic way, meaning how I really am. But I also know that most people aren't really interested in the answer. It's we, we, we go through this dance called, hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I mean, sometimes... I'll say, how are you to somebody? And they answer back so fast with the question back, how are you, that I'm not even sure they heard the initial how are you kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's challenging to do that. And the only thing that I know to do is to be authentic myself, which means that I just, I'm, I'm being aware of, of showing up the way my heart says I need to show up rather than how my head says I need to show up. And it's it usually gives people permission to do the same. Um, I, I work for a man, a general, former Marine, he, Charlie Bolden, amazing man. He could in a meeting drop a tear at a heartbeat because right then and there he was emotional about something. Now sometimes people ridiculed him about that. They didn't think it was, you know, appropriate, but he would say in a meeting, said, You gotta understand something, I cry. My daddy cried, I cried. If I'm emotional, I cried. So you, that's the way it is for me. Well, for me, that's Charlie displaying his authenticity. Now here's a man who commanded the Naval Academy. He's a two-star general. He flew on the space shuttle four times, commanded two times. He does not have to apologize to anybody for anything given his accomplishments, right? So he just shows up. He said, this is who I am. You know, if he doesn't know something, he says that, you know, and so I always admired him for that. And he, he was one of my, you know, one of my heroes in life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Now, if you would take us through the detour that you took in college yeah. and kind of what that meant for your life trajectory, that would be great. Yeah. So um, I all my life, just like my younger brother, I wanted to fly planes. We had lived near an airport. We flew a lot and we just thought, wow, planes are really cool. I learned about the supersonic transport that the United States was working on. I said, yeah, I want to work on that. Maybe I'll fly that one day. And so that's kind of was my kid dream, you know, like growing up to be a firefighter or something like that. 
And um, now with the benefit of hindsight, I, I realized that I, I didn't have great counseling about what that meant or understood what my own aptitude was. But be that as it may, when I applied to colleges, all I was looking for was who had a program that eventually I could learn how to fly. Well, I was thinking Air Force and ROTC and and that's still in existence today. Well, different schools had ROTC programs. And so I said, okay, I'll go on the ROTC. And then I had to pick a major, you know, a college major. So, okay, I'm going to pick aerospace engineering. And that was really because that was the closest major, aero engineering, to aviation, right? <laughs> so it didn't have much to do with any of that. Now, the context of my making all these decisions was – I didn't, my parents were not engineers, they were not scientists, my mother was a school teacher, my dad was a lawyer turned diplomat, I, I, I knew of a civil engineer in our inner circle in Sacramento where I grew up, but I didn't know aeronautical engineers, so I didn't have, and I went to a school that didn't have college counselors, so I just kind of winged it, no pun intended, on my own. So two things that I learned when I got into college and joined up with the ROTC. The first thing I learned is I really didn't like the military culture. Now, I don't have anything against the military. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big supporter. But for me as an individual, when it comes down to the day-to-day -day things you have to do and be responsible for, I didn't resonate with me. I, didn't, I, it, I wasn't comfortable. And um, that led to a revelation later in life when unlike my brother, I'm very much a process-oriented person, which means that for me, the process of what I have to go through to get somewhere is just as important as the end goal. My brother, on the other hand, he doesn't particularly care. I'll give you two examples. He decided, he was a journalism major. He went into officer candidate school and decided to fly in the Marines. You can't, you don't get any more hardcore military culture than the Marines. And I visited him at Marine bases where he was stationed. And, you know, they had big, nasty drill sergeants that you were scared of. And they made you eat snakes and go out in the cold. And the James brothers, we don't like the cold. So that, mm, I feel you. We don't like, I don't like the cold. He didn't like the cold. But he was willing to endure all that because all he saw in his head was a cockpit. And he said, whatever it takes. I'm going to get in that cockpit. I, on the other hand, learned that the steps I had to take, whatever it is, if I didn't like those steps or I didn't enjoy it, I tended to quit. And I did. And I did. And I also found that with the aero engineering, although the engineering was interesting, you got to understand the time when I was in college. So this was 1975 through 1979. That was after the Apollo program, and the whole U.S. investment in in aerospace was kind of declining. It wasn't it wasn't like it is now with this emphasis on STEM and people should get an engineering and scientist. That wasn't like that at all. And I remember having professors in some of my classes tell us. You know, well, good luck finding work after you graduate. You know, it's not very exciting. I mean, I mean, professors actually say this. And in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, I don't think they should have said that. But I, I was gullible. And I, and I started seeing the writing on the wall like, wow, maybe this isn't cool. So I was feeling. And then I found that the in the classes, 
the students weren't very, they, no one wanted to get into study groups. And I like study groups. I like working with other people on projects. And there, there seemed to be these factions. And so there was a lot of things that were frustrating. And so that was a real cathartic moment for me between the ROTC and not really liking the military culture that I was exposed to and the engineering world that I felt was a kind of a dead end that I really took a deep step back and revisited, you know, what my calling was. And so I switched. And what I switched to was something that I felt I was more interested in and more connected to, and that was the international world. Because by then, I had lived in West Africa and East Africa and Southeast Asia. And I, I it was sort of in my blood, if you will, you know, different cultures and environments. I learned to speak different languages. I kind of understood the development problem of different countries from a macro level, not a detail level. And I wanted to work on that. So that's what I switched to. But I never really lost my interest in aerospace. I want to make that really clear. It was always there, but it's sort of like, you know, you always love your first love, but you kind of move on. Because when I finally got into NASA, now I'm not, you know, trained as an engineer or in aerospace. I still knew enough to be dangerous and I still had a passion for it. But now I was in the position to communicate about it and advocate for it and do other things, not as a practicing engineer. So um, that's, that's why I pivoted. And so to me, the takeaway from that and what I would suggest to people is, First of all, if you're thinking about a career or a discipline to study, let's say you're in high school going on to college, really ask a lot of questions and, and try to do internships and talk to people who are practicing engineers. I mean, I didn't know what an engineer did. I mean, I grew up thinking engineers sat on trains, right? I didn't know what engineer did. And so I, I didn't know a lot, and I didn't feel that I was exposed uh, in a way that I should be exposed. So I invite students to really expose themselves as much as possible to the disciplines that they're considering. And just because a discipline sounds cool now, you got to appreciate that by the time you're finished with college or well into your career, there's going to be 20 or 100 new disciplines that weren't invented yet. I can assure you that when I went to college, there are a lot of things that are true now that weren't true then remember there was no google there was no apple there was no amazon you know uh, 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 you know cryptocurrencies none of that i mean somebody might have been thinking about those things but that wasn't in our lexicon that wasn't in our world i was using slide rules you even know what a slide rule is i mean i was using slide rules to do calculations that's how we did calculations and then the big scandal was, you know, Texas Instrument creates a calculator. And the question is, well, can you use a calculator on the test? And like, And there were debates about, no, that's cheating. Well, no, you know, it's not about the final answer. It's about showing how you did your work and all that stuff. And there were these huge, there were these huge battles about calculators in the classrooms, right? So I went through this, this change, but I went through it at a time when a lot of things that we're seeing now, information technology and all of that, it just didn't exist, right? It, it wasn't there. So I say prepare yourself well, your foundational capabilities and skills, including your manner skills, but also your technical skills. Have a foundation. And I have opinions about what that is, but other people have their views too. Because 
the world's going to change, right? We're going to get it. We're going to have new things. We're into artificial intelligence and things that are really creepy and really scary. And so it might be wise to understand that because there'll be specific disciplines, excuse me, related to that. Instead of saying, okay, I want to, you know, do this thing and then find out that that thing has been superseded by other things. The only exception I can think of, Tim, are, are, are like certain professions like the medical profession and legal profession and dentistry and things of that nature. I mean, I, they change from the technological standpoint, right? The technology changes a lot, but they don't really, you, they're still going to be doctors. They're still going to, you're going to have to have doctors. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And so I guess our next question for you is if there are one or two people you can meet right now that would help you take the next step towards that manners renaissance, who would that person be and how would they do it? It can be a type of person or a specific person. Oh, I, I've had this. You gave me a softball. <laughs> I've, been, I've been trying to get to Oprah and Barack ever since I wrote the book and can't... <laughs> I, I can't even find the gatekeepers. Do you know anybody that knows those people? I just, I mean, yes, I, you know, obviously Barack, because I work for the man that worked for him. And, you know, even though I never sat down with the president, you know, I came in contact a couple of times, but it was you know, a thousand other people. But, you know, you know, he's got, you know, my brother's keeper happening. I would love to get into that circle and suggest that this is a piece of work that could be valuable. The the closest I, I, I'm hoping I got to that is that, um, who wrote the foreword to my book is my local congressman who actually ran for president, um, a long shot, but he did. And he's got a little bit of a national platform. And so he did me the favor by sending a couple of signed books to the current president's wife, who is an educator. And I was kind of hoping secretly that she would actually get it and say, wow, this is good stuff. And, you know, I'll, I'll nudge old Joe to say, you got to put in a few good words about this. Uh, because interestingly enough, and I don't know how many people caught this, but like the day or two after, um, I think the inauguration, President Biden gave a talk to his his staff, his White House staff. You know, he'd hired a bunch of people. And it was all because of COVID. It was all virtual. And he's talking about various and sundry things. But the one, and I actually got a clip of this because I nearly fell out of my chair when I heard this. The one thing he told his staff, he said what that he would fire them for he didn't use the word bad manners but if he said if you're disrespectful to anybody i'm gonna fire you on the spot and i about felt he's saying you have to have manners in order to stay employed i thought that's all the endorsement i needed um and i have the clip and it was it's amazing because he never said anything negative the whole talk right he was very um you know positive and everything but but he literally said if i catch anybody being disrespectful and uncivil to anybody i'm going to fire you on the spot now he was in many ways responding to how his predecessor showed up but i just thought that was amazing so i i sent a book to dr biden hoping that you know i haven't heard back but uh yeah i was i really would like to have barack and oprah you know because then then because the goal is look i'm not 
I'm not, I don't have to sell books. I don't need to sell a lot of books. I mean, I make a great, I made a great living and I have a great retirement. My goal is to spread the manners love. I'm trying to convince people that it's not old fashioned, that it's actually the secret sauce. And if you learn it well, you will do phenomenal. I believe that all my heart. Love it. Love it. What's the most important one or two things that everyday people can do to help you? Get this dream going if they like the book or they like the message spread it tell people about it i mean you know amazon it's under five dollars now on amazon and uh let's see november 23rd uh the audio book comes out i was fortunate enough to be allowed to do an audio version from the company that bought the rights to the book so i did the narration and so you can get it as an ebook, a paperback, and on November 23rd as an audiobook. And, you know, so my, what I ask people to do is that, you know, don't, don't just agree with me because, you know, you might like me or think it's great. Re read it. And if it resonates with you, if there's something that resonates, then share it. Tell people about it. The only caution is <laughs> this happened to a friend of mine from NASA, a guy that I work with. He made the mistake of sending all three of his children a copy of the book and forgot to remind them that I was the one who was the author because I know all of his kids and all three of them called him up. Dad, what are you doing sending me a book on manage? Are you saying I don't have good manners? What are you trying to tell me? And they just went off on the guy and he goes and he said, no, 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 no. Didn't you see who the author is? It's Donald. It's my friend Donald. In fact, we were roommates, you know, for a while. And so they go, oh, oh, oh I didn't notice that. So, <laughs> So I say, so be careful when you share the book because people might infer from that that you think they have bad manners and could use this. I tell that to parents all the time. I mean, I'm of a certain generation where, you know, we have our opinions and, you know, we think that the other people need good manners. And I don't believe that at all. I mean, I wrote this book for myself just as much as for anybody else. But I say, be careful when you share the book, you know, say, hey. I read this book, I got a lot out of it, and you might too, see what you think. That's kind of what I suggest. So spread the love, tell people about it. Absolutely, I love it, I love it. Well, awesome, now we're gonna jump into our thriving three. Okay. Just start by telling us what your favorite book, movie, or podcast is, pick one. Well, that's easy. The favorite podcast is the one I'm on right now. I mean, I, I'm I'm excited. I mean that sincerely. I mean, it's been uh, it's it's such a joy to speak about something that I care a lot about. To speak to somebody that seems to be, and I I think I'm a quick read on people. I mean, after many years, I I I pick up things that pretty quickly. And I can tell you're a pretty sharp person and you have a lot of courage just even doing this and you have, you know, your own mission with respect to this podcast and I have a lot of respect for that. So I applaud you for doing that. Um, my favorite movie is probably The Matrix. I was completely, I still love The Matrix. Um, I mean, I love a lot of movies. I mean, I, I watch all the James Bond movies. I grew up on James Bond. But in terms of, make you think movies i like make you think movies i like movies that when i get to the end of it i'm like whoa 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 whoa, wait hold up what what was that you know like mm, i gotta watch that again i think i missed something oh yeah and so i i find the matrix is one of that i'll never forget the first time i watched it sort of like 
You ever had like a first time experience of anything and then you realize later in life that that was really a pivotal moment in your life? Well, that was true for me. I mean, I remember where I was. I remember who I was. And, you know, I think we were ha I was having the movie night with the guide and said, oh, let have you ever seen The Matrix? And I go, no. And he goes, you haven't seen The Matrix? You know, they were kind of like that. And I said, oh, yeah, you should watch The Matrix. So I watched The Matrix and within the first five minutes, I'm like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> and so um, I just thought it was a great metaphor for a lot of things. And, um, you know, and it, it still kind of unfolds for me. And then... Um, Boy, a favorite book is hard to. I mean, I have, I have many favorites. Um, I, I mean, I like John Cabot Zinn's "Wherever You Go, There You Are." I, 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 I identify with Buddhism quite a bit, and and he's a interesting Buddhist thinker out of Massachusetts, and uh, does a lot of meditative work and contemplative work. Um, so I've always resonated with that book. I think I've read it a couple of times. Um, I'm trying to think of the last one I read that really moved me. I mean, I read, you know, former President Obama's book. And, you know, I thought that was interesting to read. It was a really insight into it. I mean, I don't know that I'll reread that, you know, but um, I would give that a little bit more thought if I think of it's a favorite book. I, I tend to have a long to read list and I don't get to all of them as quickly as I'd like. Um, uh, but Zen's book, um, you know, really lands well. Um, I used to enjoy on the fiction side, uh, you know, the John Grisham novels, you know, the firm and things like that. Um, but in terms of really, you know, life impacting, books uh i used to be into a lot of science fiction i haven't visited science fiction in quite a while you know arthur clark and uh, robert heinlein people like that um so i don't know that's um let me spend some more time on that and i might have a better answer for you yeah yeah for sure <laughs> awesome awesome what's one way you like to take care of yourself drink water for one thing <laughs> I, I tend to talk a lot um I like to take long walks. Uh, that's when I meditate. Um, I either read the book, you know, audiobook, or I just walk and, you know, commune with nature and let my thoughts put them in, put my brain in neutral and just let it run. Um, you know, pick up trash on the way to do my part for the planet. That's, that's one of my favorite ways of taking care of myself. Um, I love, uh, you know, I love to socialize. You know, I'm a very, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a, in Myers-Briggs lingo, I'm an ENFJ. And, you know, as an extrovert, I tend to get my energy from other people a lot. So, you know, the worst thing I could do is to be by myself. You know, when my wife used to travel for work, you know, that was always difficult because, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was at my best when, you know, my partner wasn't around. So I'll, you know, call my brother or somebody and try to hang out with other people. Um, but walking is how I like to take care of myself. And particularly now, I'm 64 years old and I'm very well aware that how I invest in my, my body and my mind is gonna pay dividends later. And later, you know, I hope to be a grandfather. I hope to travel more. 
post-pandemic, and I want to be able to do all of that. And so it requires an investment now to do that. So exercise is important to me. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. And what is one action step you can take right now to either meet Oprah and Obama or just get your book's message out there further? Well, I already did it because I asked you because of your degrees of freedom to help me find somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that even knows the gatekeeper that I could reach. See, that's all I need is the gatekeeper. I couldn't even find the gatekeepers. Now, the Obamas actually have their own personal website. And I think on two occasions... I put in the, you know, they have a contact us thing. Otherwise, you get into an automated thing about joining an organization or the foundation. And I said, you know, succinctly that, you know, I worked in his administration. I even sent a picture, I think, once. I have a picture of him and me and, and the administrator. And, and I didn't get a response yet. So I might have to take a trip to Chicago and just have to look the brother up. I don't know. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm... I am a believer in asking for help. I actually think it's a, it's a, um, an important skill to learn. And so I'm not opposed to asking for help. So anybody that I talk to, I've said, if you know somebody that knows somebody, just give me a name and an address and I'll take it from there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Well, hopefully we can do that for you because that's what we're here to do. Well, so. I appreciate it. So thank you very much in advance for anybody you know from your past, anybody you might know in your future uh, who might have a connection, um, you know, whatever it takes. I mean, I know he's very popular and they're very popular people and there are a lot of people that want his attention. I just want to give him a signed book and say, is there anything I can do to help, you know, my brother's keeper and all of that, you know, so, you know, he might say, talk to the head of the foundation and that's fine too. But because of the privilege that I had of working for him and his administration, I do, I do want him to have the book, but it would help if he, if he tweeted out, Hey, good book on manners suggested. I mean, that'll get a lot of people interested, particularly a lot of young brothers and sisters that I'm trying to reach through this work. You know, there's actually this one book. It's called Giftology. Giftology? Yep. And it's a really short book. It's about giving gifts as a business strategy. But I think there's a tip in that book that you can take from to get your signed copy to Obama and perhaps get an audience with him. Wow. That's I'm going to check that out. See, you already helped. That's cool. <laughs> Look at you, man. Yeah, man. That's the goal. I'm happy to do this it, but... This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a really cool way to send over a signed copy of a book that will capture his attention and at least make him pause and think about it. And um, yeah, and that's you know, there's there's so many books out in the world, and you know, there's a lot of things trying to capture our attention, and I appreciate that. Um, but I think that the nation and the world is really ready for a message like this. At least that's the feedback that I'm getting. I haven't talked to one person that even hinted that, you know, this isn't worth it or this is not a good idea. The biggest challenge I get is usually people think it's somebody else's fault as to why there's bad manners. And I'm that's not my advocacy. My advocacy is to look inward, you know, and start with yourself and, and grow yourself in that area. So that's why I want to just reach as many people as possible for them to take a look at, you know, their own manner, if you will. So um, 
and I realize in this world of influencers, you know, that's a, you I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a boomer. So I'm learning new terminology that there's this <laughs> thing called influencers. I had to ask my, what's an influencer? I asked my daughter, I goes, Oh dad. <laughs> so you know, she said, these are people that, you know, get on, what is it? TikTok, and they do something. And all of a sudden 2 million people are checking stuff out. I'm like, okay, well I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to get attention, but I'm not dancing for no, I don't know if I could go that far. Nope. That might be a bridge too far. But um, so I ask for help and I appreciate any help you can provide. And thank you for the help you have provided. This is a great resource and I'll check it out. Awesome. Awesome. Happy to do it. Is there anything else you want to chat about before we sign off? Um, I would just leave with this. Uh, one, one of the things that I learned working at a place like NASA, which obviously has a lot of smart people, and, and this is a message that I suggest to students and anybody who will listen, it's just not good enough to be smart. Uh, NASA has a lot of smart people. Um, sadly, I've known smart people who didn't get promoted or who didn't get to be picked as team leader who are actually lost their jobs, not because they weren't smart, but because they had bad manners. I mean, now we never say in the papers, you know, that's the cause, it's usually other terms. But in my world, as I look through the lens of manners, that's what I see. I think it makes or breaks certain businesses. If you look at the headlines of so many papers, people who are leaving organizations because they're disgruntled or things like that, it's a manners issue. It's how people are being treated, how they're being respected or disrespected. So I applaud anyone who aims to be very smart and get lots of straight A's or who wants to just make a lot of money and all of that. I have nothing against that. What I would invite them to consider is that if they're looking for a fulfilling and meaningful life and career, and to be successful, being smart isn't good enough. Work on your manners. That's my that's my hypothesis. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, if you guys were listening to this podcast and you love this message, make sure to connect with Donald, read the book, share the book. If you know somebody who knows Oprah or knows Obama, yeah. let's get them connected ASAP. Thank you guys for listening to the show. Donald, thank you for being on the show. As you know, at the end of every episode, we ask everybody who listened to just send this to somebody who they think needs to hear it and drop us a five-star review on iTunes. And on that note, we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one -on -one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media. That's all I got. Have a blessed day.